In business and life, relationships are everything. Welcome to the People Catalyst Podcast, where we interview top business leaders and learn how they build relationships with their teams, clients, and those that promote and refer them. Here's your host, business trainer and leader of the People Catalyst team, Carla Nelson. And welcome to the People Catalyst Podcast, Elena Love and Andrew Sherman. How are you guys doing today, Elena? Terrific. Terrific. Really happy to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and we're so excited to have you back on the show, Andrew. We had so much fun the first time. I know, an encore presentation, and now I get to bring Elena into it. I, I, I don't think I could be more blessed right now. Oh, well, <laughs> this is awesome. I know. And we, we're actually, I think, cooking up one, one more podcast we'll let you know about down the Absolutely. road. Absolutely. And, and Andrew, 26 books. Again, I've shared that story. I, that was amazing. I've done a lot of interviews and met a lot of people on a lot of podcasts, but Andrew has this amazing uh, focus of uh, finding a problem and then just writing some solutions to it. So he's got all sorts of different books he's written. And there was one specifically about road rules, right? And the importance of passion is kind of um, how you and Elena met, right? It is. We uh, in in 2008, I wrote a book about life after writing all these business books called Road Rules. And one of the central themes running through the Road Rules book was the importance of passion, both in the workplace and in our lives and in our culture. And right around that same time, I was introduced to Elena by a mutual friend, actually another thought leader, uh, Dr. Robert Rosen in this field, who's written a bunch of books not 26, but he's written a bunch. And um, he introduced uh, me to Elena and I did some homework on her research and the passion profiler. And, uh, you know, it, it was really bonding at first sight, you know, to, to meet somebody who was so like-minded uh, and had so accomplished that um, we've been good friends ever since. Uh, and I think it's, it's coming up on 12, 13 years that we've known each other, thanks to Dr. Rosen. Nice. Yeah, we're pretty blessed. <laughs> we're blessed. I love those stories. You know, our motto here on the People Catalyst podcast is in business, in life, relationships are everything. And so I always mm -hmm. love hearing the stories, how people meet. And uh, so what we're going to talk about a little bit here today is anybody who listened to Andrew's and I's previous podcast, will make sure there's a link to it in the show notes below, is that there is this huge opportunity, uh, this $40 to $50 trillion that is the largest transfer of wealth that's ever happened in the history of the world, right? And then we broke that down into the buying side and the selling side. And we really focused on the both intangible and tangible assets. And actually, uh, Andrew shared a really interesting story. Why don't you just share it with us real quick, just as an example of the tangible and intangible asset when you were a young attorney? Well, when I first got out of law school, I was working on a transaction. Uh, it was a sale of a small chimney cleaning company. Uh, the total purchase price was $500,000. Um, that night I was working on the final asset purchase agreement and bill of sale. And I realized that the assets only added up to $475,000. And I started sweating profusely <laughs> thinking I was going to get fired for typos. And I literally could not sleep all night. The next morning, the senior partner comes in and I said, I need to talk to you right away. We're about to commit fraud. And he said, <laughs> you know, said, don't use that word very so freely. And I said, I said, well, you don't understand the purchase price is 500,000 and the assets only add up to 475. And he said, well, just write down goodwill, $25,000. And I said, but what does that even mean? 
And he said, you know, <laughs> it's all the other stuff. I mean, culture and governance and customer lists and people's happiness in the workplace and customer loyalty. And, and I thought, okay, you know, this doesn't sound right. Well, that was in 1986. And if you dial forward, as Elena knows, I mean, these are now the most valuable assets mm-hmm. at Google and Amazon and some of the, you know, and Apple and the most valuable companies in the world understand that the intangibles uh, greatly trump the tangibles in terms of their strategic mm-hmm. value and enterprise value. And, you know, the reason uh, Elena and I uh, have gotten along so well over the years is she realizes, as I do, that if people are unhappy, if goals are not aligned, if governance is off, if culture is off, you know, you'll never, ever, ever accomplish the enterprise value that you're capable of. And you'll be on the short end of the stick when it comes to selling your business one day. Oh, that is so true. Yes. We just did a podcast on that not too long ago about the largest cost Mm -hmm. to any business turnover and a bad hire, which those are two sides of a uh, the same coin, and that's a very thin coin. And so, well, Elena, we just can't wait to hear about this passion profiler. And and can you share a little <laughs> bit about your story? And it's a very unique and amazing story. Your pathway that you've uh, kind of walked here. But could you share us? How did you uh, get started in this industry, and then develop the passion profiler? Oh boy, this is a really um, close to my heart, very personal story. Um, I actually began my career as a research scientist. I I was in uh, medical school and then went on to um, become a research scientist in a pharmaceutical company in immunology. And I thought when I got to that organization, I would never leave. I thought I am a lifer here in this company. This is just the best place in the world to be. I'm learning so much. There's so many brilliant people I get a chance to work with every day. And at some point while I was in the research field, I made a couple of transitions from basic research into clinical research, overseeing clinical trials on what's now an over-the-counter anti-ulcer medication. And then I saw this place called human resources. And I thought, well, that looks kind of interesting. I wonder what goes on over in that place called HR. And so I started (laughs) uh, talking to people who work there. And as it turns out, one of the women who was um, the director of the department was a former chemist who had worked in the laboratories and she had made the transition from the labs into HR. So she had a job opening and some 10 interviews later, (laughs) it took me 10 attempts, she hired me. And I started uh, working in HR and thought, you know, this is great too, because I get a chance to see drug development from conception in the laboratory all the way to market. And I, I grew and grew and grew into positions of increasing responsibility in that function until I finally was uh, an executive director worldwide for the sales and marketing division of the company. And I had this, you know, just fantastic team working with me. We were dealing with some really tough challenges. We had had a phenomenal year, that, one particular year that comes to mind as the pivotal one for me. And I got called to my boss's office to receive my performance appraisal which was glowing. I mean, he was thrilled with what we had accomplished um, that year and thrilled with the fact that uh, our team had basically saved the bonus pool for the HR function because some of the other teams didn't do as well. And it was the first year we were going to be evaluated by our client groups on our service to them. And that evaluation determined the the size of the bonus pool that he would have to distribute to everybody in the department. So we had done a lot to kind of save the game. And he told me during that conversation that I was in the succession plan as his replacement when he left that role. Now, 
Now, believe me, as somebody who was very hardworking and very ambitious, this should have been absolutely phenomenal news to me. But it, for me, uh-huh. it felt like having an out-of-body experience, like, like, <laughs> like I've overdosed on cold medication and my brain is separate from my body. And I'm watching this conversation go on between these two people. And I, I learned later that I said all the right things in that meeting, but I have, you know, it was amygdala hijack. I have no recollection whatsoever about what I actually came out of my mouth during that meeting. But I remember walking back to my office and closing my door and sort of sitting there and saying, you know, what is wrong with you? Why are you not thrilled with this news? This is what you've been working for. You'll have an opportunity to report to the CEO of a multinational, multi-billion dollar company. You'll be able to make all of the growth and changes in the HR function that you think are important. And oh, by the way, you're going to make a lot of money. <laughs> so, yeah. But I sat there wrestling with myself and it was like these two voices were in my head warring with one another. And one voice just said, you know, oh my gosh, I don't want that job. I don't want that job. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I think whatever I came here to do, I've done and I'm finished here. Mm-hmm. And the other voice said, wait a second, you're being rash. Let's just think about this for a moment. Maybe you're in shock because of this news. Let's take a moment and just, you know, give yourself some time. So the two voices are in an argument with each other and they finally agree that I will put a stake in the ground some 18 months into the future. And if I don't feel differently within that time frame, I get to leave. So mm-hmm. I look up 18 months later, I come screeching into that stake in the ground. I don't feel any differently. And I reduce my annual income by 100% overnight. I lose. <laughs> and and I, re- I remember. I don't know why you're both laughing. I just heard 100% reduction in income. I know. Well, I just know. It, it made me I think of, my chair over here. It made me think of every entrepreneur that I've talked about that's made that crossover, right? From, from the. Yeah their corporate but, focus, right? Which you've learned all this wonderful stuff. And then all of a sudden decide, because uh, we're talking about passion here, right? So that's right. really at the center of why people go, hey, I want to go to work for myself because I want to put what I like to call dent on the universe. I'm not sure. I think Steve Jobs was the first one to call that. I thought it was pretty cool. Okay. So <laughs> you decide that 18 months later, you step away. I'm out of here. I step away. And uh, about two weeks after doing so, I think to myself, Wonder if that could have turned out differently. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Was that really what I had had to do? But I remember thinking to myself, how is it that this company lost me and that I grew out of love with my organization? I mean, how could that be? I thought I was a lifer when I came in. And what I realized is that increasingly I was feeling over the years less and less uh, like my, my passions were being connected to the things that I was being asked to do. I felt less a, a sense of purpose in the work, and I felt strongly that I was here to do something bigger than what I was doing, but I didn't uh, have a language to describe that. If, in fact, if my boss was wonderful when I told him that I was leaving, he was like, he, he, he pulled out this giant top hat, he threw a cape on, and he started pulling rabbits out of this hat like crazy, offering me one job after another, and I could not find a way to say yes to any of them. And I realized after, after pondering about this, that if an organization could lose me, if I could decide not to be a part of a company that I thought I would be with my whole life, who else were we losing? Who else was feeling this sense of disconnection from who they are and what they were doing every single day of their lives? So 
I pull out my nerd hat. I become the researcher again, and I uh, conducted a study looking at people who were deemed by their organizations as being high potential, people that would, they would want to grow into leadership positions in the organization. And I looked at people over 14 different industry segments, both domestic and international, for-profit, not, non, non-profit, and government. And what was incredibly consistent when I spoke to these folks who were high potential is that they wanted to feel like their work mattered, mm-hmm. that what they, was, they were doing was more than just an economic means to an end, and that keeping them in their organizations depended largely on them feeling like they had an outlet for their passion in the work that they were doing. Because if they didn't, these were people who had choices. They were very talented. There were other organizations that they could go to. But those who felt like they had the, uh, the, 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 the triad of uh, being skilled for the work that they were doing, having an outlet for their passions in the work that they were doing, and being in an organization that honored their values, folks who, who lived in that sweet spot where those three intersected felt, felt like there's all to play for. I'm going to ride this wave all the way to the beach. I might be able to go across the street and make more money at that other company, but I don't know if I can create this experience that I'm having right now. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you know what, Elena, if I could just reinforce one point, give you a chance to, mm-hmm. to take a breath too. You know, one of the things I've been frustrated by, and I'm sure both of you feel this way, is you know, the HR role in corporate America, whether it's big companies, medium companies, and particularly weak and small companies, is still to this day non-strategic in many, many companies, mm-hmm. more focused mm-hmm. on filling out forms and complying with this and getting this approval and enforcing the employee manual. And, yep. you know, I've been asking, including its speeches for SHRM, uh, the Society of Human Resource Management, when does HR get a strategic seat at the table? When do HR issues bubble up to the board of directors level? You know, even in my teaching at Georgetown Law School, I've got 80 students. And when I ask them, how many of you want to be labor and employment lawyers and deal with people issues? I only get a couple of hands that go up. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. we all agree that people, culture, leadership, governance are the enterprise values, enterprise uh, uh, value drivers of the next decade, and yet nobody wants to work in the space. I mean, how, how, you know, how are we going to square up maximizing value if a lot of the young people um, aren't even choosing this career path? Mm-hmm. That's a good, good. And I, Go ahead, Elena. I was going to say, I would agree with you, Andrew, um, having come out of the function. What I can tell you is that there's a lot of attention being paid to overseeing benefits and, and making sure we're recruiting people into the organization and filling positions, especially in those organizations where the, where the growth is high or where the, the strategy for growth is through acquisition and, and, and merger. Um, you know, there's a lot of focus placed on those kinds of issues, but I don't see as many HR professionals spending the bulk of their time worrying about the culture that's being created, spending time making sure that things that are supporting the culture, which ultimately support the engagement that employees experience at work every day, is the top focus that they have. They're, they get and, sidetracked with these other things. Yeah, and, 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 I, add, and I believe they do it at the peril of the organization. Exactly. And I'll add one other area. You know, Carla asked how we met. One other strategic intersection that Elaine and I have talked about and, and we've spoken on together is 
so much of the HR effort right now is focused on diversity and inclusion, and it should be. Mm -hmm. I, I, we still have a lot of work to do. But what isn't focused on as much, or at least not until a couple years ago, was the business proposition of diversity and inclusion and the innovation that comes when you have a truly diverse team and inclusive team. And so there, again, the enterprise value dividend of some of these HR priorities has to be part of the dialogue because, you know, it's not just because it's the right thing to do. It's also because it makes really good business sense and it drives enterprise value and it's reflective mm -hmm. of our societal demographics. Yeah, and, and from absolutely. that, it's not a big jump for people to feel more passionate and aligned in the workplace when they're uh, in, in comfortable surroundings and supportive surroundings and truly, you know, people are, are, are genuinely curious about each other because they want to learn, not just because, you know, there's some statistical reason that they're on the same team. Yeah, and Andrew, you make a well, great point here of what I was going to mention about HR, because everybody always asks us, we do play a role in HR in the work that we do at the People Catalyst, but by default, there are a lot more later adopters. So if you think about 110 years of marketing research, law of diffusion of innovations, there's more later adopters that are attracted to that type of work that you were talking about, Elena, which is, you know, mm -hmm. um, the hiring aspect, all these things that need to be done that are very going into work and doing the same thing uh, or looking at all the things that could go wrong so you don't get in a legal situation. And so I think that would be so interesting with what you brought up, Andrew, about no, nobody wants to go into that strategic HR space because you could very well, the mindset of HR has not been the strategic aspect of it. And strategic comes from the early adopters. Tactical comes from the later adopters, right? And so I would You're just be curious. Correct. So go ahead, go yeah. ahead and answer on that or respond. I would love to hear what you uh, have to say. Uh, that I well, I think you're absolutely correct on that. And I'll tell you, um, if, I, if I look at my own practice here at Purposely Consulting, the people who are the earlier adopters of this work around the passion profiler are um, leaders, leading teams who are worried about, do I have the right people on the bus? Um, do I have them in the right positions? Am I giving them an opportunity to express their best self at work every day? because they realize that on average, each of us is gonna spend well over 85,000 hours of our lives at work. Yep. The only thing we spend more time doing is sleeping. So if I'm gonna attract and retain the very best talent, I've gotta give them an outlet to express who they are and bring the best of who they are to the work. So when we talk about things like diversity and inclusion, part of what we need to be including in that conversation is do we have a diversity of passion sitting around the table contributing ideas? because that's where innovation comes from. It's not yes. from living in an echo chamber. Yes, I and agree. And uh, that, that's, that's an excellent ahead, point, sorry. Elena. I'm totally tracking with what you're saying because the work we do is just based off the core nature of your work, right? But you can be passionate about something and it doesn't fit, you know, it's like the affinity of if, if you love basketball, uh, but you're four or five, you know, it's like you can have passion, but it's the affinity. It's the two. Like, what are you great at and what are you passionate about? And there is something mm -hmm. just brilliant that comes out of when you can identify where somebody lives. They just, you know, open up and, and now they're being held in their magnificence versus what we unfortunately do a lot of times is point out what people are not. Uh, exactly. Of, right. Let me, let me um, make one other uh, strategic intersection. So 
Um, when I wrote the book on the crisis of disengagement that Carla, we talked a little bit about on the last show and more than happy to do more on a future podcast. And Elena contributed a, a, a guest uh, contribution to that book because what we both see is this, you know, disturbing level of apathy in the workplace of disconnected, you know, people disconnected to their work, disconnected to the values of the company. And this is one of the root causes, the lack of passion or unaligned passions is a root cause of the levels of disengagement. So when we talk about only 4%, according to Gallup, of the entire workforce considers themselves highly engaged, the same issues could be said about passion in the workplace. How much more valuable would your enterprise be? How much more productive? How much more innovative? How much more profitable mm -hmm. if you could move the needle, move the passion needle inside your company's culture, org chart, governance, leadership? Well, I'll tell you the answer to that question, Andrew. The answer I is one hell would. of a lot. I, I was hoping actually you did exactly. A, yeah, Gallup <laughs> actually did a study on this because they study everything, which I, I love about them. I and do And they too. actually looked at, at – um, the uh, number of people in the U.S. workforce who are considered actively disengaged, that's about 18% of the 50-something um, percent that are disengaged. So I, I think from the last numbers, there were about 34% of the workforce is considered engaged. The rest are disengaged. Of the rest that are disengaged, about 18% of them are considered actively disengaged. Those are the folks who are you know, at the water water cooler, complaining about everything. You know, they're yeah. swirling around the porcelain and they want to take everybody else with them. So they're miserable. Gallup looked at that and said, okay, what is the impact on lost productivity from people who are actively disengaged? Let's look at that in, doll in a dollar figure over a one-year time period in the United States alone. You care to take a guess on what that number looks like? Huge. The one, yeah. the one I saw was about $800 billion per year. Yeah, I, I, so the, the range that they've seen or tracked most um, often is somewhere between 450 to 550 billion dollars a year. That's the number I've seen. I can believe that there are years when it's up as high as 800. But think about that for a second. If that's happening across the nation in a year from actively disengaged people, what is happening inside your company? Mm -hmm. I, if you're I, not paying attention to this issue, this is huge. Yes, and, well, and when we start. The other thing is, is you, some of the consequences, which I think, Carla, we talked about last time, are not, you know, so pleasant to talk about. I mean, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, mm -hmm. uh, workplace violence, workplace pilferage, um, you know, these are things that are very real, very, very dangerous mm -hmm. to our society, and also have mm -hmm. an engagement and passion, you know, root or core to them. Yeah, that's yeah, a good point, Elena. On the flip side of that, there's been some research done. Um, in fact, a study was published in uh, HBR a couple of years back, um, looking at emp employees who are happy and feel a, you know, a sense of passion and purpose for their work. And what they found in this study is that those employees are 31% more productive than their counterparts who are not happy. They are likely to generate 37% higher sales if they're in sales roles, and they're three times more creative. Now, every time I put those figures out in front of anybody who's leading a, a team and say, you know, who would like a team that's, you know, 31% more productive? Everybody raises their hand. Who wants, 
a team that's generating 37% higher sales, all hands go up. Who wants people who are three times more creative? Both hands of every person are waving in the air. Of course we do. So it's kind of a, a no-brainer that this is an important thing, a, a, appalling to me that not more attention is being paid to it. And frankly, when you look at organizations, both two, two organizations, you know, and especially in a commoditized industry, all things created equal, the organization that has figured out how to harness the passions of its people and has provided an outlet for those passions to flourish is going to win hands down every time. It's the competitive edge that organizations are not making enough of and need to be paying really close attention to. Yeah. And I'll tell you, Carla, one thing that Elena and I have been talking about lately is, you know, the impact on the professions. I mean, I can't begin to tell you how many lawyers, doctors, accountants, mm. consultants, engineers, scientists are completely burnt out. They're completely frustrated. They've lost their passion for what led them to the law or accounting or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, medicine in the first place, but they're so boxed in in their lives, you know, with financial commitments and other things that they bring, they come to work every day with this, you know, heavy financial burden and absolutely no passion left for their jobs. Yep. And yet we, yeah. you know, who are getting surgeries and uh, taking advice from these professionals every day don't really understand the level of burnout uh, and, and other things that are going on in their lives. And, you know, there's a lot of applications, both organizational and personal, uh, to Elena's work. And, you know, I, I don't think it comes as a shock to any of your podcast listeners that, you know, we have a society right now that's very fractured and very dysfunctional and very broken and a piece of that brokenness is the inability to feel any emotion around your day-to-day -day work and your day-to-day -day lives. And yeah. that's got to get fixed. This is, this is not who we are as a nation. Yeah, no. great point. And I, th I think we're at, we're, the, the, the issue is even more concerning and disturbing if you look at the demographic shift that we're experiencing across the globe. We've got Gen Zers who now are, are the majority in the population. They're overwhelmingly looking for brands and looking for companies that they feel have a purpose, that are dedicated to social impact, that are environmentally conscious, that have strong values, uh, and, and, and that are purpose-focused. So um, if you want to attract, retain, and engage that group of the population, you got to have a different and better story to tell, and you, you better understand the why behind your business, and you better be able to link your why with their passion, or you won't keep them. If, if I, it's, look at the record unemployment or uh, low levels of unemployment now. The war for talent is raging. Yes, and that's kind of interesting. I was just, you were uh, picking up what I was thinking there, Elaine, around that, because now you see where everyone's talked, we've talked about talent management. I could give you every corporate buzzword that you've also heard around that aspect of finding and aligning your team with your purpose and your why and making them feel like their work matters, that they matter. Because nobody gets mm -hmm. burnout when they're a part of a winning team and they feel like their work matters um, in, in that disconnect. 
it, it's interesting because I always talk about, and there's another Gallup poll, you know, 70% of people hate their job, not dislike it, hate. 89% worldwide mm. hate their job. Uh, and they've mm-hmm. been doing that, conducting that since 2000. And it's pretty much the same numbers. There's a little bit of a skew sometimes. And, and I was chatting with Andrew about this is what do you think that does to uh, their health, their finances, their relationship? I never thought about the other side of it, what happens to the people receiving those services from those individuals that are burnt out? Exactly. I'll add one more data point since we're on a data point role. There was a study that <laughs> ADP, I believe, came that said that something like 62% of America's workforce are open to an overture, okay? In other words, open mm-hmm. to being talked about leaving. Could you imagine if 70% of our of 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 our country's marriages, this one or more spouse said, "Yo, yeah, I'm open to an overture." What do you think the divorce rate would be? Wow. I mean, you can't <laughs> keep people. I mean, you can't keep people in jobs if 70% of them are quote unquote open to an overture. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That you know, and and to Elena's point, I think we're raising a generation that for the first time in probably a hundred years. I mean, a hundred years, I certainly don't remember having this conversation with my great grandfather or grandfather, but the first time in a hundred years is willing to place qualitative over quantitative experience over money. You know, mm-hmm. they, they want to know the company's values. They want to know they're important. They want to know the value of the work that they're doing. And if that costs them an extra five or 10 or $20,000, you know what? They're willing to make that sacrifice or they have one of us as their backstop and they can afford to make those choices because they're going to have inherited wealth. And, you know, we're going through an important transformation. And Elena's hit the nail on the head. If you're listening to this podcast and you're a leader of a company and you're not understanding that you can't just throw another $5,000 at somebody and expect them to take the job, um, that's not how it works with this next generation coming up. Yes. No, we have a generation where meaning matters over money. Very well Meaning said. matters over money. Yes, and, and that I don't see that shifting. I just see that increasing over time. And I, you know, the other thing that's also true, Andrew um, and Carla, is that I've noticed that the other generation in the workforce, the baby boomer generation, is starting to sound a lot like the millennials and the Gen Zers to me when I hear them talk about this particular issue. I call it a confluence of self-actualization happening at, at both ends of the generational spectrum. The, the, the baby boomers are saying, well, you know, I've gone through, you know, several uh, financial crises in my in my time, and my 401k is still a 201k. It's not quite where I need it to be. I can't really afford yet to retire. But if I'm going to spend X number of years, additional years working, then it's got to be that I'm doing things that I feel a sense of passion for, that are fulfilling, that I I'm, I'm getting some sense of purpose from. Or why the heck am I doing this? And yes. you have the other other end of the generational spectrum kind of saying the same thing. So well, and then you add you add one more interesting development, which is the advent of technology and impact of robotics. And people are saying mm-hmm. that you know one fourth of our total global workforce could be replaced by robotics by 2030. And people are saying, wait a second, you know, number one, if my job is going to be replaced by a robot in 10 years. I better reconnect with my core loves and passions and beliefs. And number two, I better be passionate in the workplace because that might be the only thing I have left to keep me relevant uh, relative to a bot. 
And there's, mm-hmm. there's, we could do almost a whole show on where Elena's work and research overlaps and intersects with the impact of technology on the future workforce. No Absolutely. doubt. No doubt. And the other piece that is, you know, it's not that I enjoy the fact that the unemployment rate isn't low. I think that's a great thing right now. One of the out comes of it that I think we're starting to see is really taking this thing HR seriously. So let's hope that at least, you know, it helps in knowing that when the unemployment rate is low and millennials are, you know, and and this was, uh, I do, I do believe Sherm uh, reported this, the average lifespan now of a millennial that you hire in corporate America is uh, 18 months, two months of them you know, enjoying their engagement and doing what it is they do, thinking they can have this, as you were saying, Elena, um, matters, right? And over money, mm-hmm. their debt on the mm-hmm. universe. And then all of a sudden, they spend 16 months after that um, for another job, right? And so I'm kind of interesting all the different aspects of what we, what we uh, you know, discussed around that. Uh, and have discussed not only on this show, but my goodness, the technology piece and aspect of that as well, Andrew, uh, is a huge piece and where we're going. And, and, and then to come up with the thing we started this with is the 40 to $50 trillion transfer of wealth, the greatest transfer of wealth ever to happen. And then going through these uh, intangible, these things that, and as Andrew, you had stated, all these large companies, the intangibles, even if you include just data in that one, my goodness, data, people, uh, culture, leadership, um, the way that technology is impacting our companies, uh, the way the the, just the globalization, too, of the workforce itself, right? I mean... Right. And when it comes to enterprise value, look, you're fooling yourself if you're listening to this podcast and you don't think that one of the key areas of due diligence in the future when you're positioning to sell your company isn't going to be culture and passion and levels of engagement. Buyers are going to want to know, I mean, do you have an engaged and passionate workforce or do you have people with their foot halfway out the door who couldn't care less whether this company succeeds or fails. And if that's the case, you have to ask, how many dollars of enterprise value am I leaving on the table? How many dollars did I have a chance to fix it before it was too late? How much wealth am I robbing my future generations of by not fixing this problem ASAP? And do you have sound systems in place that once that company sold will allow that company to maintain that level of engagement and that quality of the culture? Love and it. Have you embedded it in the way you think and do things? Guys, we could go on forever and ever on this. This is just what I love. I think there's a huge opportunity as well as all of our listeners in looking at this huge transfer of wealth that's coming up and understanding how this impacts. It doesn't matter if you have a local store on the corner, guys. It doesn't matter if you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. This impacts every aspect of enterprise value. So with that said, gosh, guys, thanks so much for coming on the show. Where can we get a hold of you, Elena? Uh, You can reach me at uh, thepurposelink.com. That is our website, thepurposelink.com. And my um, contact information, my direct email is alove at thepurposelink.com. I'd be happy to give you any further information that you might want on the passion profiler and the work that we do. And Andrew, where can we get a hold of you, my friend? Um, all my information is available either at Seifarth, S-E-Y-F-A-R-T-H.com, 
And if you're interested in uh, some of the books that I've written, they're all on my Amazon author page. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Elena and Andrew. Until next time, uh, definitely take a look at your enterprise value and how you can use the passion profiler to make a difference in the intangible aspects of your business. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for being such a great host, mm -hmm. Carla. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Carla. It was terrific. Thanks, Andrew. It was so good you to talk to you again today. All right. We'll talk soon. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the People Catalyst podcast. And remember, it's a good life.